think this got announced this morning, but just a reminder that every every Sunday morning, even though that uh, we, we now have a pastor, uh, that we're still going to be meeting for prayer uh, at uh, 8 o'clock uh, every morning, every Sunday morning before Sunday school. So I would encourage you and invite you uh, and just uh, would, would offer that up as kind of the engine room for, uh, for what we're doing here at Gateway and what God is doing. So today we're going to look at... Uh, uh, James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18, uh, and you can go ahead and be turning there. Um, and the last time I spoke with you, uh, we looked at James chapter 1 and the trials or tests that God uses us to shape us into his image. Um, and just some background on the book of James, it was believed to be the first book ever uh, written in the New Testament, and that James was writing to Jewish believers who'd been scattered from Jerusalem Uh, due to persecution, whether it was from Stephen's martyrdom or or from Herod Agrippa. James was the leader of the church in Jerusalem. In a sense, he was writing as the shepherd of those Jewish believers who'd been scattered abroad, writing a letter to them. And one of the main themes in James' letter is that those who claim to have faith in Christ, that there will be a visible outworking of that uh, in their life. And it will be consistent with that professed faith um, and really living in obedience to God's word uh, and God's ways and, and, and more and more becoming like Christ. And that that would be something that could actually be seen. Um, James has been referred to as the gospel in shoe leather, where, where James really talks about the outworking of our faith, a faith that works, a doer of the word. And James takes many areas of life and, and he covers these and kind of this idea uh, of, of a genuine faith that works itself out. And, and we're going to look at that today. So James begins in this passage, and he begins with a question. And that question is this, Who among you is wise and understanding? So he's asking this to the church. And, and today we can ask that to ourselves. Who among you is wise and understanding? But a little more background. You know, as you look at this, you want to, We want to always look at this in the context. And and one of the contextual elements here is that James, in writing to Jews, uh, these Jews would have already had an understanding of what wisdom is. Because that's one of the first questions you're going to ask. Um, And they would have had an understanding from the Old Testament wisdom literature. uh, Job, uh, the book of Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Psalms, and the Song of Solomon. And they would have been very familiar with this. So James isn't going over the whole background of what wisdom is. And as we discussed last time I was with you, James and his writing is very direct. That he doesn't do a lot of explanation a lot of times. He just gets straight to the point and he's going to get right to, to the heart of the matter. And so, but the first thing that these Jews would have known, and James doesn't really go there, but is that what wisdom doesn't mean. And it doesn't mean knowledge or what you know or your intellect. And what they would have understand is this idea of wisdom is actually the art of of living, the skillful art of living. It's actually the life you live. And that's kind of a foreign concept when we use the word wisdom. Um, And said another way, wisdom could be said to be applying knowledge in the power of the Holy Spirit to the reshaping of life, the transforming of attitudes, and the transforming of your behavior into righteousness. So true wisdom is knowing God in a life-changing relationship And so wisdom, then again, it's not what I know, but it's how I live. And James would have been talking to a people who understood that. 
Um, and a lot of times, and we, we could look at it this way, according to the wisdom of God, uh, the wisdom of God is actually a barometer on my spiritual condition and how I live my life. So when a person puts his faith in Christ, and this is really, really important for us as believers, then you are, ish, you are ushered into this sphere of wisdom. You're ushered into godly wisdom. And really, Christ is the only entry point uh, into wisdom. So then true wisdom comes from God alone. And the Jews would have known this, uh, that wisdom comes from God and, and one in a relationship with Him. 1 Corinthians one twenty four and 30, um, and this is the New Testament kind of verifying this, says this, But to those who were called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, but by His doing... You are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. That Christ himself is wisdom. He is our wisdom. And in Colossians 2 and the end of verse 2 to verse 4 says this, Christ himself, in whom all, I'm sorry, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument. So as a believer, Christ in us is the wisdom of God. And that's an introduction we need to have before we jump into this passage. So let me summarize. James is a Jew writing to Jews. So he assumes their Old Testament understanding, which is supported by Paul and the New Testament. It's also supported by Jesus. And we'll look at that later as well. So as we get into this passage, I want to ask you to be thinking, kind of set the framework of your mind in a couple of areas. First, I want us to ask the Lord to open our eyes to the truth that, that we're going to get in this passage and, and this truth about really what is at the heart of worldly wisdom and what's at the heart of godly wisdom. And then what are the characteristics of earthly wisdom or worldly wisdom and what are the characteristics of godly wisdom or true wisdom? And then finally, what are the results of worldly wisdom and what are the results of godly wisdom? But secondly, is, is I, I want us to spend a little time also in self-reflection, each of us just in our own lives. Because when we go through these passages, really it's going to be about how do you live your life. And, and just some self-reflection on, on what we see in our own lives. And, and ask the Lord to reveal to each one of us, kind of how are we operating in the realm of wisdom, in the realm of true wisdom? Or are we operating in the, the realm of worldly wisdom? And I think that's going to be beneficial to all of us. Another piece is, kind of the last piece as we talk about this, I want you to think about this passage in terms of relationships with people, the relationships you have, whether here in the church particularly, but also in your workplace, in your marriage, in your family. And just think about how this passage applies in those areas. So, James chapter 3, a lot of introduction. We're going to read the passage and and then we'll get into the text. So verse 13, who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior, his deeds and the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there's disorder in every evil thing. But the wisdom from above It's first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering and without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace 
by those who make peace. Let's just pray. Father, these are living words. Lord, and and we know that unless you build the house, Lord, that those who work will work in vain. So we ask even today, Lord, that you would build the structure of our heart as we hear these words, Lord, as we hear your truth. Lord, you would fill in us uh, the desire to, to, to love you, to serve you, to walk in your wisdom. Lord, we ask that you would do what only you could do today. Lord, would you open eyes to see? Would you open ears to hear? And would you open hearts to receive what you have for each individual here today? We pray this in your strong name, Jesus. Amen. So, how does a believer put true wisdom on display? So here, once again, is the question James poses. Who among you is wise in understanding? Now, first of all, why would James ask this question? It could have been because there were people in the churches that he had heard were, were, were teaching false teaching. It could have been that, that there were arrogant, proud teachers in the churches as they had scattered abroad. And he was addressing this, the, those teachers. And he was actually giving all the, the believers in a body the ability to discern what is godly wisdom and what is worldly wisdom. And so those are some of the purposes that he could have been writing from. So he says, who is wise in understanding? And this next statement is, is pretty interesting. It's not what we would normally think. He says, well, let him show by his good behavior, his deeds and the gentleness of wisdom. I don't know about you, but that's not what I would think I would get out of how to tell if someone is wise in understanding. But James says, who's the wise man? Let him show it. And this is very typical of James. It's the theme of his whole book. is to be a doer of the word. And first, by his good behavior. In other words, if you know someone over a period of time, you're going to see a consistent behavior in, in, in the person who's demonstrating godly wisdom and is wise among you in their life. But secondly, there's going to be specific deeds. You're going to see this, this wisdom worked out in deeds. And, and James is saying not just generalized good behavior, but specific deeds. And then thirdly, he said there's just going to be this outward disposition of humility uh, in the person's life, this attitude of humility. And, and as you see over in the Beatitudes, an attitude of meekness. Um, and by the way, as you, as you go through this, James parallels a lot that we see in the Sermon on the Mount uh, and, and obviously was influenced by the Sermon on the Mount. So, so wisdom is manifesting the power and the Word of God in every area of the life. So who is wise? It's the one who shows by his good behavior. He shows by specific deeds and shows by an attitude of humility. And then, so James makes the case that if someone claims to be wise and exercising godly wisdom, they're going to show it. It's not just going to be a professed word. And that's really, really important. Then he pivots. He pivots over to let's talk about worldly wisdom first. So let's, let's unpack that. And he says this in verses 14 through 16. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. That this wisdom is not which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there's disorder in every evil thing. So he really just goes under the surface here. You know, you may have heard, you may have heard the term worldly wisdom or worldliness or earthly wisdom, but he's going to dive under and, and, and really give us an understanding of how we can discern worldly Wisdom. So what is he begins with the heart. And, and I just want to say this up front so you can do a little outline in your own mind. When, he, when we're going to talk about worldly wisdom, 
He's going to first talk about the heart level, what's inside your heart, the inner man, when it comes to worldly wisdom. He'll do the same thing for godly wisdom. And then he actually lays out what are some of the characteristics of worldly wisdom and godly wisdom. And then he'll end up with, you know, you can really see this thing. There's results of worldly wisdom and there's results of godly wisdom. And this is how James lays out both of those for us. Um, So the heart of worldly wisdom says, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, don't be so arrogant and lie against the truth. So the heart of worldly wisdom, let's let's unpack that. The word bitter. It's actually a word that was that was used of undrinkable water. And he uses that, I mean, to, to amplify jealousy. Uh, and, and the word jealousy here, it's zealous and it means evil, burning emotion, inner feeling, boiling over, envious, contentious and rivalry. And then he says that's not enough. It's also selfish ambition is at the heart of worldly wisdom. And he goes, it's a word that means self-interest or ambition. Again, it's, it means rivalry, seeking of followers. And it's really from a word that means mercenary. And if you're not familiar with the term mercenary, it's just someone that's for hire. They're out for themselves. I'm for hire and I'll do what you need and it doesn't matter what the consequences for are for it. And so it's, in general, it's the idea of kind of a, a harsh, bitter self-centeredness. And it produces a resentful attitude towards everybody else. And he says this is at the heart of worldly wisdom. In other words, and and this is something we can all relate to, it's a me kind of world that these people live in. who are exercising worldly wisdom. And and they have their own little world that they're living in. And it's a self-formed world. It's a self-focused world. And it's a bitterly jealous attitude that they convey to anyone else that threatens their world. And this is the... The heart of worldly wisdom. <clears throat> now, some people can handle this better than others, but, but all self-focused, <clears throat> excuse me, worldly wisdom type people struggle with this. And it's this competition. And it's me against others. It's me focused. And he, and he tells us that this is in our heart. This is the motivation for worldly wisdom. Um, now, Proverbs also helps us with this. And Proverbs 4.23 says this, Guard your heart with all diligence, for from, from it flow the springs of life. So this idea that everything begins in the heart. This is a very uh, a central theme in the New Testament that Jesus talks about over and over. And this is why sometimes when people get to the book of James, they have trouble with it because they think this is all about works. You're telling me about working out my salvation. But what James is really saying in all of these cases is that if you have a genuine faith, it will work itself out. It will be visible. And there's also visible signs to to someone who's living in a worldly way and they have worldliness in their heart. But then James gets very, very direct, even more direct. And he says this. He says, if these are true about you, if if you've got bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, Well, for crying out loud, don't be so arrogant and lie against the truth. And he says, look, if your life is characterized by this proud, loveless self-centeredness, and that's your motivation for life, stop stop being arrogant and boasting as though you have wisdom. You know, and and he's really calling people out on this. And if you look back in James chapter 1, verse 18 and 519, what you'll see is when he talks about Lying against the truth, he's talking about lying against the gospel. 
He's talking about someone saying they have something when in fact they really don't have it. And so I just want to kind of stop here and say that I think James really calls for us to, to do an inventory in our own hearts. And, and here's kind of a question for reflection. And I just want you to think about this for yourself. Is what, what motivates you? Just, just look at your heart. And are you motivated by the things that are God-honoring? Are you motivated by a love for others? Are you motivated by humility? Are you motivated by unselfishness? Or are you kind of on an ego trip and motivated to do things for yourself, for your desires? And you know, when you think about those who are born again, there's no one single characteristics that is more evident of someone who's born again that they're no longer dominated by self. This selfish purpose in their life. This self-focused life. And really it's... uh, one of the most central characteristics to a non-believer is that their life is dominated by pride or self. So this is the characteristic of the message of the entire book of James, that a genuine saving faith is going to produce a life that's consistent with the Word of God. So we see the heart or motivation of worldly wisdom. It's self-centered. And so then James says, okay, how does this work itself out? What is the character of worldly wisdom? Go to verse 15. He says, This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. Now remember, what do we mean by wisdom again? The understanding of the Jew, it's a lifestyle. That kind of thinking, that kind of acting, that kind of conduct, that kind of attitude that constitutes the wisdom that descends not from above. So let's see what James is talking about here. Um, When we start looking at the word earthly, we're going to see this, that it means just what he says. It's it's limited to the sphere of time and space. And it's a confined space of sorts. And by the way, I meant to mention that if you look at those three together, (coughs) earthly, (coughs) excuse me, earthly, natural, and demonic, does that sound familiar to anyone? A lot of times we talk about the enemies of the believer. It's the world, the flesh, and the devil. And typically when we talk about the world, we're talking about the world system of whom the devil is the prince of the power of air, of the air, and he is over that. And he is the one who's actually moving that to where it's going, the world system. In our flesh, which is a believer, we still have an unredeemed humanist, but the, for the unbeliever, it's that natural base uh, of, their, of their being. Uh, that's what he's talking about here. But let's break each one of those down. Uh, Again, back to earthly or the world. Um, Outside of this little sphere that we're talking about is God. But inside is the wisdom of man. And and, and what's interesting is you look at the world around you and we look at uh, where we're at in the world. um, You see worldly wisdom demonstrated. And you see that the best man has to offer and it's totally outside of God. It's totally outside of God's wisdom. So everything the world comes up with is more and more self-centeredness. And let's talk about several arenas of life, whether it's the abortion issue, whether it's human sexuality from the LGBT uh, community or point of view, uh, 
There's a word now that if you actually listen and read that, that's associated with both of those, it's the word autonomy. It's this word autonomy. I want to have the rights. I want to have what I want to do, my rights, self-focused. And these are associated, and this is a human worldly principle now that is so real. It is not descriptive of the believer. It is descriptive of worldly wisdom. My rights, my way, my space, my body. And this pervades all of our human institution, every dimension of life. And so all of the wisdom of man, the wisdom that's not from the above, has the mark of the curse. And the only thing, the farthest we can get, is our own fallenness in terms of worldly wisdom. He goes on to say earthly, and then he says natural, the flesh. And this word is, uh, is interesting. It's sukikos, and it, and it means animal, our animal instincts, our natural self, our sensuous self. And it really refers to what the Bible calls the flesh, our lower nature here, our carnal nature. If you look over in 1 Corinthians 2, 14, it says this, the natural man or the sukikos man, it's the same, same word there, doesn't understand the things of God. And this man is sensual. All of his feelings, his impulses, his appetites are in this closed system that can't get any higher than the wisdom of man. And if you look across the fields that we have, whether it's sociology or psychology or philosophy or education in general, whatever it is, um, the way we comprehend ourselves, the way we comprehend our problems, the way we comprehend solutions, it's really from a humanistic, fleshly, sensual perspective. That's worldly wisdom. But that's not the end of it. It's, it's also demonic. It's the only place uh, in the scriptures where this word is used actually in an adjective form. And human wisdom, though it's all that man can produce out of his own mind, and it's locked into our earthly existence, is really generated by what source? And folks, this is, this is truth. This is, this is the truth of God's Word, and that is demons. The demons who have been made captive to the same kind of evil system of which we're also captive as humans. And just like what Paul said in his writing to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.1, he said, But the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. So earthly wisdom comes from demons. It's reflective of sensual feelings and it goes no further than our fallenness. But Satan calls it wisdom. When Eve was in the garden, if you remember this, in chapter 3, verse 6, she looked on the fruit. And here's what she said, because she heard that the tree was able to make one wise. And that was a lie. And Satan always promises wisdom. And he always promises that you'll know and be in the know and understand and be educated. And that the wisdom of the world proceeds from evil spirits. It proceeds from fallen angels, from demons, from Satan and his agents who are disguised as ministers of light when in fact they're ministers of darkness. The thing that makes human wickedness so devastating is that man is smart and man is wicked. And the combination of those two is deadly. So this is really important. Demonic, natural, earthbound wisdom never touches 
God. That is so important to understand. It never touches God. And it leads men who operate in this realm into smugness, to self-content, to immorality, and into arrogance, and truly into self-sufficiency. And you see how this is playing out, what we're describing here, what James is describing as worldly wisdom? This is, the, this is the world we live in. It's the unbeliever's life. And if you look, at the, look around us and get discouraged, you know, there are reasons to be discouraged when you look at the world around us. Um, because we want it to be different, right? I mean, we, we want our world to be different. We want the reign and rule of God to come. But you know what? Our, our world just doesn't have any answers. And it's, it's not going to get any, any better by worldly wisdom. The human institutions that we have and as much studying as we can do fall so short to evaluate what is man's problem. What are man's solutions? As we said before, whether it's education or sociology or psychology or whatever the field is. And if you're in one of those fields, don't take that personally. But the truth is, is that's not going to get us to the truth of God and to His wisdom. Because it doesn't begin with God. And that's human wisdom. And that's the wisdom that characterizes the world that we live in. So James then tells us, what does this worldly wisdom produce? And he says, he kind of says in verse 16, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, he's going back up to the heart motivation. He says, where this is the heart motivation, he says there's disorder in every evil thing. And before I go on, does that need any definition? Can you look at the world around you and see disorder? In every evil thing. Now, I know this sounds like a really negative message, but as believers, just the idea of disorder in our world and the idea of every kind of evil in our world, this is a reality. It's true. And this word disorder here just means instability, disturbance, upheaval, revolution, almost anarchy. Um, and actually, the same word is used in chapter 1 when he talked about the double-minded man unstable in all his ways. Talking about that same word there. And every evil thing, <clears throat> it's just a word that means worthless and wicked. And actually the word thing here is the word pragma, which is where we get pragmatic. And it just, it just means actually the practical outworking of evil. Specific things. And he's saying that where there's worldly wisdom that, that's operating, that basically the result is going to be disorder, confusion, chaos, evil. So does that make sense? So James has given us an idea of worldly wisdom. Well, praise the Lord, he doesn't stop there. I'm so grateful that James doesn't just leave us, but, but it's, it's a reality and it's true. And so, as we move on now, James is going to talk about the genuine article. Godly, true wisdom. So as we turn to verse 17, he says this. And let's just soak in this. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering and without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness, sown in peace by those who make peace. Mm. This verse, let's start with the heart of godly wisdom. And this is a word... Uh, it's the word hagnos, which means pure to the core. Pure inside and out. Uncontaminated. Chaste. Unadulterated. And it really has more to do with spiritual integrity and moral integrity. Free from bitter jealousy. Free from selfish ambition. 
free from arrogant self-promotion. It's actually the same word used of Jesus in 1 John 3, 3, where it talks about He is pure as, as a pattern for us in purity. So first of all, as to motive, the wisdom of God is pure. True godly wisdom comes from the heart of every believer. And I want you to hear this. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have the wisdom of God. Did you get that? No unbeliever can enter into this realm. They live in the world. And I don't care whatever unbeliever you know, as good and nice as they are, as evil as they are, they're operating in the world of worldly wisdom. But you as a believer, what a privilege and a gift that you've entered into the realm of God's wisdom. And one of the ways you can know this, you might say, but, but you know what? I don't feel like I have a pure heart. I don't feel like my heart is that way. It's uncontaminated or unadulterated or chaste. Well, Paul didn't feel that way either. If it's an encouragement to you. You know, Paul was, Paul was as he tells us in Romans chapter 7, Lord, I want to do your will. I want to please you. Lord, I don't want to do some of the things that I do. I find myself in this dilemma. My heart is to love you and serve you. And you know why Paul could say that? Because just as it says in Ezekiel, when we became believers, God gave us a new heart. Heart of flesh. He replaced our heart of stone. And you know what? That heart is a heart that wants to love God. A heart that wants to serve Him. A heart that wants to love our brother. That's what Paul was saying. I have that heart in me but I don't always work it out. And so I want to encourage you. It's not a perfect heart. It's not that we do the perfect things with our heart. But you do have that heart in you if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. And I want you to know that. And the psalmist also cries out when he says this, O oh God, purge me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. So, the true believer hates his sin and really is repentant and is always turning back to the Lord. As Tim Keller said, all of life is repentance. He wants a clean hands and a pure heart. And you know, the, as you remember the Beatitudes, as James looks back to that, remember, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And this word see actually means to understand that the pure in heart will understand God. And Jesus is actually describing one who's come into the kingdom of God. This is what believers live like. This is the heart of believers. It's the pure-hearted who really understand God. So this, he, he then follows on, and he gives us a list of the character and nature of godly wisdom. And he says, he said it's first pure, which is the heart motivation. Then he says it's peaceable. And this is a word that really means peace-loving and peace-promoting. And you remember, what does it say in the Beatitudes? Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called what? The sons of God. What a mark. The wisdom of God is not creating confusion. It's not creating disorder. It's not self-promoting. It's peace-loving. It's peacemaking. And what this doesn't mean is you compromise on the truth. It doesn't mean you make peace at all costs but that this is the essence of godly wisdom. It makes peace. And that is truly a characteristic of a believer. And again, as I said, is I want you to think about these in your own life and ask the Lord to really search your heart. The second is gentle. And, 
And uh, William Barclay, one, a great commentator in the Bible, said that this was one of the most difficult Greek words of all to translate into the English language. But he says this, it's the lovely attribute of redeemed character and godly wisdom that is humbly patient, that is steadfastly gentle, that submits to dishonor, disgrace, mistreatment, persecution with an attitude of humility, an attitude of courteousness, an attitude of kindness, an attitude of patience, an attitude of consideration without hatred, without malice, without revenge. And as the Beatitudes say, blessed are those who are persecuted, who are reviled, and people say all manner of evil things against you falsely. That's what it says. And he says this, that this is the kingdom of God for you. This is what kingdom citizens are like. They're peaceable. They're gentle. When I say this, this is what we're like, what we're to be like. They know no revenge. And then he says we're reasonable. By the way, just full, full disclosure, this has been a very convicting sermon. This is very convicting for me to read this, you know. And that's a good thing. That's a good thing because I really, when I can see the mirror as James talks about, and I can look into the mirror and God could show me my own heart, that, that is a beautiful thing. It's actually, if you don't want that, well, maybe, maybe we don't always want that. But when we look into God's Word and we see our own heart and there's a disconnect, well, praise the Lord that we're looking and we're seeing it. Right? Because God wants us to walk in a different way. So this has been tough for me to look at my own heart and just see how in many of these areas the Lord needs to do a work in my own life. So this word reasonable, it means they're willing to yield they're not stubborn, or they're easily persuaded. They're teachable, and they're compliant. Now, the opposite would be stubborn and obstinate and disobedient. So you can see why I have a hard time in my own life with, with this one. And this word is actually used of someone uh, who submits to military discipline willingly, someone who observes legal and moral standards willingly in their life. Those who are humble and broken over their sins and mourning over their sin and just humbled because of their sin. The compliant ones, the easily persuaded ones, the teachable ones, the yielding ones. That is, that is godly wisdom in a life. Let's talk about full of mercy. This really means a concern for people who suffer. Manifested not only in you forgiving people who have wronged you, but in reaching out to people with compassion who are suffering. And when people are characterized merciful, demonstrating kindness and compassion, we go back to the Beatitudes again in Matthew 5, 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. And that's evidence of the saving faith, that you have this kind of transformed life. He goes on to say, full of good fruits. And he's just talking about a wide variety of good deeds here, of spiritual deeds here. Um. This is the person whose life is demonstrated in good deeds. And James talks a lot about the idea of good works. He talks about the idea of serving orphans and the widows. He talks about the idea of being holy and bridling our tongue and, and all these things. So the wisdom of God is such a beautiful and unique thing. And again, I want you to think about it in terms of relationships. 
The next thing he says is unwavering. And this is really a hard word, too. And really, every other translation other than the New American Standard really talks about this in terms of uh, without partiality, uh, that we're not to have partiality. Godly wisdom is consistent, and there is no partiality in any way in their life. And then it says without hypocrisy. And this is just a, the person that's sincere and they're genuine in their life. They're not phony. There's, they're not fake. There's no pretense in their life. They don't wear masks. And this is really kind of that climax of true wisdom. It's kind of the, this person right here in front of you. What you see is what you get. They're genuine. And this is a high standard. And I just want to remind you that we're not what we ought to be. None of us are in here. But God's given us what a heart for Him, what a genuine faith looks like as it's worked out in life. So what are the results of godly wisdom? We saw the results of worldly wisdom. And it says, And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. The outcome of true godly wisdom. Righteousness, living God's way. Living rightly. Now we, we know that the righteousness that we have and we stand with before Christ is given to us by Him. It's nothing we can earn or do. What James always says, though, is if Christ has imputed to you righteousness, it will be visible more and more in your life. As you move through your life, you will be living more and more in God's will and His ways. You will look more and more like Christ. That's what he's saying. So let me summarize. James shows us here in this passage the difference between those who say they're wise and those who actually have true wisdom. Those who profess wisdom contrasted with those who live it out. It isn't your intellect or elegant speech, but a life lived well. And James paints a picture of a wise person. We'll summarize that again. Who has pure motives. A behavior that reveals a love for making peace. A humble, patient, non-retaliatory spirit. A sweet reasonableness. A willingness to yield in obedience. A habit of merciful, compassionate acts towards others. A variety of righteous deeds that minister spiritual good and benefits to others. An undivided commitment to God's truth without partiality towards anyone. And all of this is sincere and genuine. James says that person is the one who has true wisdom. That person is the one who can answer that question. I'm wise and have understanding. So I want to close up here with Matthew 7, 24 through 27, where where Jesus himself is speaking. And I actually have that on a different place. Matthew 27, 24 through 27. And this is what Jesus says. And he's finishing up the Beatitudes, which is appropriate because James pulls so heavily from the Beatitudes. And the Beatitudes really is a description. And in all of Matthew 5 and 6, a description of what it means to be a kingdom citizen, a believer born again into the kingdom of God. And here's what he sums it up and says, Therefore, and the therefore is everything I've just talked to you about, and the Beatitudes, the similitudes, and so on and so forth. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them 
may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house. And yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. Praise the Lord. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house. And it fell. And great was its fall. So to summarize, James, a Jew writing to Jews, so he assumed their Old Testament understanding of wisdom, which was supported by Jesus and Paul and others in the New Testament. And I want to talk just about a couple of applications that the Lord would open our eyes. Hang on just one second here. I'm sorry. Got mixed up in my notes. So as we come to a close here, I'd I'd like to go ahead and ask the praise team to come as we prepare uh, for, for the Lord's Supper here. And I really believe it's fitting that as we've talked about today, the wisdom that comes from above, and really that Christ is that wisdom, that today that we're going to to remember the Lord's suffering, His broken body, and His bloodshed as we share in the cup and as we fellowship together. And to remember just the holiness of this and really the beauty of this is that this isn't something we do alone. This is something we do together as a body, that we come together to remind each other, to remind each other of forgiveness of sin, And ask the Lord to continue to do a work in our life. So let's pray. Father, as we close up this time, Lord, we thank you for the love of Christ that you've poured out in our hearts. We thank you for the wisdom that you've given us in Christ. And Lord, our really, our heart's desire is that, Lord, we would live a life that's pleasing to you. Lord, that our life would be a fragrant offering to you. And Lord, I am the first one to repent and say, Lord, that apart from you, I can do nothing. I am nothing. I pray for everyone here today, Lord. For everyone here today, Lord, that you would show them their heart. Lord, you would confirm to them the pure heart you've given them. Lord, you would confirm to them the wisdom which you've given them. And Lord, for those who may not know you today, Lord, who are operating in the realm of worldly wisdom, I pray, God, today may be the day, Lord, that you open their eyes to the need for a Savior, the need for someone to take them out of the realm of the world and bring them in to the kingdom of God today and for eternity. So today as we, as we approach the Lord's table, a couple of things. I would ask that this, this table is for believers, for those who have come to faith in Christ, those who have been born again. And if you have if you've come to faith in Christ, you're welcome and encouraged to come to this table. I would tell you if there's anything in your life that you need to deal with before the Lord, please do that and then come. If there's relational issues that you have, please lay those before the Lord and then come. We don't come to this table perfect. 
We come to this label because we're not perfect. And because we need everything that this represents as we look to, to Christ's blood shed on our behalf. So if we go ahead and just form...